You know, 14 Medal of Honors have been awarded in 17 years in Afghanistan. 11 of them have been awarded in Kunar and Nuristan province. Eight of them were awarded in Kunar and Nuristan between October 07 and October 09. Three of them to our unit, two of them to Chosen Company in the Weigall Valley. I mean, it was, it was a fight every day in that valley. But on that morning of 4 July, um, two, or excuse me, 13 July at 04 in the morning, 2008, for one reason or another, I was in the talk at the time, our, our tactical kind of um, operations center, and I heard Matt Meyer, the company commander's initial call, um, into me, and it went something like, Rock 6, this is Chosen 6, we're in a ranch house-like attack. And we had shared understanding, we had a lot of trust um, between myself and the company commanders. And at that time, I knew exactly what, the, what that meant to both of us. Hey, welcome back to The Spear, a podcast by the Modern War Institute at West Point. I'm John Amble, Editorial Director at MWI, and The Spear is our platform to explore the combat experience. In this episode, I had the privilege to talk to a guest about not just combat, and there is a lot of it in the stories that he shares, but also leadership. The day after we release this episode marks the 10th anniversary of the Battle of Wanat. On July 13th, 2008, around 200 Taliban fighters attacked U.S. soldiers and a small contingent of Afghan soldiers. In the very intense fight that followed, nine Americans lost their lives, and more than two dozen were wounded. It remains one of the most deadly battles for U.S. forces during our long war in Afghanistan. Colonel Bill Osland was the battalion commander of the soldiers who fought the battle. It happened in the 14-month of an extremely difficult 15-month deployment. In this conversation, he shares his memories of that deployment, of the battle, and of the paratroopers he commanded. He also speaks very candidly about the aftermath of the battle, a trying time for himself, but one in which he also fought very hard in defense of his unit's honor and the sacrifices of his soldiers. It is a moving story, and one that I think holds some incredibly important lessons on not just the essence of combat, but the essence of leadership. Before we hear from Colonel Ostland, really quickly, just a couple notes. First, thank you for listening to The Spear. If you're enjoying it, we would really love it if you could take just a few seconds and give it a rating or leave a review on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. It really does help new listeners to find us. And second, as always, what you're about to hear are the views of the participants and don't represent the position of West Point, the Army, or the U.S. government. All right, I hope you enjoy this very special episode of The Spear. Colonel Austin, sir, uh, thanks for sitting down and talking to us about um, the Battle of Wanat. We're, we're right now kind of commemorating the 10-year the anniversary of um, one of, I think, what history will look back on is kind of one of the defining battles, certainly one of the most um, uh, challenging experiences of the U.S. war in Afghanistan, the long war in Afghanistan. I wonder if you can just kind of start us off by um, talk about what your position was during the battle and what your role was. Yeah, thanks, John. Um, my position in the battle was I, I was a battalion commander. The Battle of Wanat was largely fought by 2nd Platoon of Chosen Company, 2nd Battalion, Airborne, 503rd Infantry Regiment, known as The Rock. It's got a long uh, legacy, honorable history in uh, the airborne community. So, again, my role was the battalion commander. I'd been in command about a little over two years at that time, and we were in our 14th month of a 15-month deployment during mm-hmm. the battle. What part of Afghanistan is this? Um, we were, our area of operation, AO Rock, was in Kunar, largely in Kunar, but had elements uh, extended into southern Nuristan province. So Wanat's actually on the very southern end of Nuristan province, um, uh, that which is adjacent to Pakistan in northeastern Afghanistan. So it looks a lot like what people picture, I think, when they picture Afghanistan is this kind of rugged, mountainous terrain, very difficult to maneuver in, uh, very difficult to fight in. Uh, what was the deployment like 
in for those previous 13, 14 months? So we got there and we're actually the second unit to occupy AO Rock, the Kunar Nuristan area. We took over from 132 Infantry out of 10th Mountain and they were pushed up there and were told to really prepare the ground for us to come forward and relieve them in place. And we did that in June of 2007. It is remote, austere, rugged terrain, very, very little infrastructure. It's in the Hindu Kush mountains. We had peaks up to 10,000 feet, just very, very um, remote roads. And what I mean by that is many were not even Humvee capable, but uh, the locals would traverse these on small Hilux trucks or by foot or by mule to just live and survive in that area. So it's already been a pretty tough deployment um, in a pretty tough environment. Uh, and then as we get into, I guess, the spring and, and, and leading into the summer of 2008, 10 years ago now, um, how, what, how, how does the, the, the battle that you know, became known as the Battle of Winnat, how does that come about? Yeah, so if I could take us back even before the deployment, we were training up in, up in Germany doing our collective training. Again, my unit, I should have mentioned the Rock was based in Italy, and we did much of our training in December. As we were doing one of our intensive training rotations, we received word that we would be remissioned from a comparatively contested area in Iraq and instead go to Afghanistan into this contested area as part of a surge of forces into Afghanistan. So we immediately went on a pre-deployment site survey. I linked up with the 132 leadership, then uh, Lieutenant Colonel Cavoli, very well-versed in the area, very, very smart person on infantry tactics and, and understanding the coin environment. I learned very quickly that it was going to be even more contested than, than uh, our deployment would have been to Iraq, and, uh, but felt we were on track to, to do well in the environment. When we completed the PDSS, I understood why they positioned all the bases they did, but I was very concerned really with two bases that were what, what I would call air-centric, meaning we couldn't drive to them which if I can't drive to them in Humvees or other vehicles, I can't resupply them, I can't reinforce them, I can't ground medevac, which is very important in mountainous terrain in which we have to consider weather, um, aircraft availability, and the enemy situation if I do have to reinforce, resupply, or medevac. So early on, before we deployed, well, I'll just say for 16 months, I wanted to close and move those bases. To do so requires um, permission to do so, and it really requires the assets, the uh, ISR assets and the airlift assets to move and close those bases, and it's a coordinated operation. Can you describe those bases? Um, you know, these are small, right? How many how many soldiers are occupying? Either any of them. Yeah. So between, um, and to put it in context, so these bases were, the two bases I'm talking about are, are the Ranch House and Bella. And Ranch House was approximately 20 kilometers north of my battalion headquarters up the Weigall Valley. That base had 22 Americans on it. So it had a half a platoon. It would have two squads and a platoon sergeant or two squads and a platoon leader at any one time. The other half of the platoon was on Bella, approximately three kilometers away from the ranch house and approximately 18 kilometers north of my battalion headquarters. And uh, that was occupied then by two squads and a platoon leader and platoon sergeant. And each base would be augmented with some Afghan security guards. Very small, probably uh, ranch house was probably 100 meters by, by 50 meters um, on the side of a mountain, and Bella was probably 50 to 75 meters square on each side. So when you saw that during your PDSS and decided you thought it was wise to, to, to close them down, what's the process? How do you go about trying to do that before you're even deployed? 
Yeah. So we certainly had numerous conversations with um, my brigade headquarters, the 173rd Airborne Brigade, and with the RC East command leadership. And, and there was a, a good dialogue, um, good, good flow of visitors once we got in country, and there was good dialogue before we got in country. So when we'd have these conversations about how we saw our, us operating in our area, I had a slide that showed, okay, I'm going to collapse uh, really three ground-centric bases that I thought had outlived their usefulness. And I was able to do that without permission, without external assets, just closed them and consolidated them, which gave us additional maneuver power for the air-centric bases required briefing and then putting together concepts of operation, um, massive coordinations um, with, with many entities, and then to continue to brief these and try to um, persuade the owners of assets, really uh, the RC command level, who own Chinook helicopters to support those operations. And what, what kind of response did you get when you said, hey, we want to shut these two bases down? Yeah, I think throughout, everybody, everybody concurred. Everybody concurred we needed to do this from the, from the get-go. They understood I wanted to consolidate down to give me more flexible combat power that would allow me opportunities, more opportunities to engage with the population. And it would also lessen the risk to force. Um, it would prevent me from having to uh, commit assets to potentially reinforce a very isolated base. And I, I use the term irrelevant um, because they were originally put there to, to kind of block enemy um, movement in that area and to connect with really remote populations. But shortly after establishing those bases, the enemy um, found new routes and would just go around the bases. So they, they were relatively ineffective or irrelevant. Um, so we, we would continue to work on, on a process of consolidating down, which would give us uh, more flexible combat power to engage with the population. So when did you plan to close them down? Well, re really from the, the first uh, briefing that, that I briefed this at that I remember or that I have a copy of was in August of 2007. Um, I mean, I'd been talking about it before, but the first briefing I gave was in August of 2007. Um, I was hopeful that we would be able to close them um, in early August, and um, we were unable to. And then on 22 August, the ranch house was actually attacked by an overwhelming force, and it was the first contact the ranch house had. 22 Americans on there, 11 wounded. Uh, Matt Ferrara was a platoon leader. He ended up calling an A-10 strike on his base to break the enemy's attacks. They'd fired 13 RPGs at one position, collapsed that position, breached inside the wire, and he was uh, fighting to, to retain that base with enemy inside of his wire. He called uh, A-10 strikes, killed the enemy commander inside the wire along with, I think, six other individuals and uh, ultimately broke the back of that attack. And in that attack, Sergeant First Class, or at that time Staff Sergeant Eric Phillips, earned a Distinguished Service Cross, and um, uh, Lieutenant Matt Ferraro earned a Silver Star in that attack. But it, it solidified the idea these isolated bases are not really a good idea. There were definitely concerns about, um, we'll call it information operations and the enemy using us closing the ranch house, as we'll say a propaganda victory. Um, so then we were delayed closing that for another six weeks and eventually closed it in the first week of October. Um, when we closed that, we consolidated that combat power down to Bella, so they had an entire platoon at uh, Bella, which is again 18 kilometers um, north of my battalion headquarters and about 10 kilometers uh, north of, of Wanat. So is there a plan to close Bella as well? Well, we continued to use the ranch house as the catalyst to emphasize, okay, this is the risk we're, we're assuming by staying at Bella, which is not producing in any, any effects other than um, keeping our people really in harm's way up there. So those conversations continued. Um, it made a lot of sense to close them in the winter because the enemy couldn't move around at that time. We weren't 
getting the support um, to close them, weren't getting the assets. And it's important to emphasize, it's not like the assets were just sitting on Bagram and somebody had this uh, shelf full of inventory of assets that they were refusing to give. They were just prioritized elsewhere. Um, it might be a, a false assumption on my part, but uh, you know, I think a, a lot of it had to do with we could actually fight, we could defend ourselves, we could take the fight to the enemy. And when senior leaders put that on a risk assessment, they're like, okay, we can remission these assets to people that need them more than the rock. And I've reflected on that for, for de a decade. Um, you know, was our success also our failure to, to be able to acquire the assets we felt we needed? So we continued to try to get the assets throughout the winter. Um, our description of why we needed to move was, was not um, immediately effective, but as we rolled into the springtime, the enemy reporting that 300 enemy were surrounding Bella. The enemy showed in June that they were effective at blocking our one helicopter landing zone by disabling a, a civilian resupply helicopter on our um, HLZ. They showed they were effective at targeting us with um, indirect fire by hitting our one of our OPs and uh, severely wounding um, PFC Green, a forward observer, which led to um, a, a destruction of some enemy vehicles, which also had um, rumored to have medical people either held hostage or getting moved along with the enemy. Um, so the area was getting very contentious in about um, July. In the background behind this was the fact that the unit coming in behind us was recently stood up and were not coming in with as many people, they were not as well trained, and they didn't have the same assets that we had. And from their brigade commander and battalion commander, they were adamant that they could not assume the footprint that my battalion occupied. So you had the enemy situation and you had the friendly situation coalescing um, in the spring and people decided that it was time to, to move Bella, and if it was to be moved, it would have to be moved by our unit. So when did that happen? So we started that operation on, on the evening of 8-9 July. We call it a period of darkness of 8-9 July, um, and it was Operation Rock Move, where we simultaneously collapsed Bella. Meaning we brought in a number of Chinooks that one at a time, gradually brought out all the equipment, deposited some of it at Wanot, some of it at Blessing to the south, and simultaneously we moved an element up to Wanot in a ground, we call a ground assault convoy. And that ground assault convoy went up with, you know, a second platoon of Chosen Company, an engineer squad, um, four gun trucks along with a, a tow system and uh, LRAS system, which is a targeting and surveillance system, low-level voice intercept and mortars and, and uh, a number of other assets under the cover of a predator that was watching them. And they established the initial footprint um, at, um, in the eve late, late evening or night of 8 July and started building through 9 July. So as you're approaching this time and you know you're going to be moving it, this is a pretty complex operation. There's a lot of moving parts, a lot of um, your organic assets, but also some others that are, you know, that, that have been tasked to help you out. Um, as the battalion commander, what was keeping you up worrying about this um, pretty complex thing? Yeah, what, what kept me up at, at night from for the 432 days or 420 of those days was really Ranch House and Bella, the isolated forces up there. Um, for the few hours that I went down um, per night, um, the thing I thought about when I went down and the thing I thought about when I got up in the morning were those isolated bases. Um, and I'd made the comment numerous times, if one of those were contested um, in a serious way, that I would risk my entire battalion to get forces up to them. And that's the best I could do to tell those young men, um, young paratroopers that were on those bases um, that, that I could do. That's what I could control. I couldn't drive to them. I could drive as far as Wanot, could drive some people as far as Wanot, 
but we would have to fight a uh, up a defile, um, defile to get to them. And we had a light case on that. On 9 November, Matt Ferrara, who earned a silver star in the ranch house fight, returned to the town of Aranis in, on, on 8 November. And he was seeking the Ashura with the elders, and he asked them what they needed to get through the winter, and he got a list, list from them. He put it in their pocket, and he stayed overnight in the school that uh, we had built for him up in Aranis. On the 9th of November, he opted to uh, depart, and like a good ranger, he didn't take the same route in. He took a separate route out. And as he was walking home, um, back back down to Bella, he was about 700 meters from Bella when he was ambushed on 9 November. And of a 14-man American element with uh, some Afghans in, uh, with them, six of those individuals were killed, to include Matt Ferrara. And, uh, and that was the longest night of my life. And again, we're in this isolated area. Um, I had a number of people killed. I had uh, sketchy reports of where everybody was. And it was Matt's RTO, Charlie 1-6 Romeo, Kyle White, who stayed on the radio, coming in and out of consciousness, calling for fire, calling for medevac, consolidating people, getting accountability, um, bringing in reinforcements um, to help him at that night. And finally, we did get accountability of everybody. Um, like in the movie Lone Survivor, a number of people went off the side of the, the mountain trying to escape the fire of the ambush. Um, and we found found them, and uh, and it took us about 18 hours to consolidate everybody and get all of our dead and wounded off the battlefield that night. So I had a very good vision of what uh, chaos and misery in Northern Weigel would look like. And uh, as many know, Kyle White earned a Medal of Honor that night. Um, James Takis has earned a uh, Distinguished Service Cross for that battle on 9 November. But again, very contested area. And, you know, as we talk about Kunar and Nuristan in there, you know, 14 Medal of Honors have been awarded in 17 years in Afghanistan. 11 of them have been awarded in Kunar and Nuristan province. Eight of them were awarded in Kunar and Nuristan between October 07 and October 09. Three of them were awarded to the Rock. I mean, it's, it was a contested area. And when we kind of talk through that history of, of our Valor Awards, our nation's Valor Awards, 14 and 17 years, and 11 of them in that area, eight of them in a two-year period, three of them to our unit, two of them to Chosen Company in the Weigall Valley. I mean, it was, it was a fight every day in that valley. So let's fast forward then to what would become known as the Battle of Minot. Can you kind of talk through that? You know, there, there, there's books and case studies on, on the battle and what individual troopers do. But on that morning of 4 July, um, to, or excuse me, 13 July at 04 in the morning, 2008, uh, for one reason or another, I was in the talk at the time, our, our tactical kind of um, operations center, and I heard Matt Meyer, the company commander's initial call, um, into me, and it went something like Rock Six. This is Chosen Six. We're in a ranch house-like attack, and we had shared understanding. We had a lot of trust um, between myself and the company commanders, and at that time, I knew exactly what the, what that meant to both of us. And um, I asked him if everybody was on on Wanot, on the cop, or on the OP. He confirmed they were. And we immediately called in um, final protective fires really from uh, danger close missions from two platoons of 155 howitzers uh, attempting to get him fires and those impacted within about six minutes um, to some effect but the enemy knew that matt meyer in second platoon chosen company had fires on the way um, within about a half hour matt was controlling those artillery um, assets, B-1 bomber that was dropping a JDAM um, precision-guided munitions, and then he called in H-64s while he's um, coordinating all this and medevacking his personnel. Shortly into the conversation, radio transmissions with Matt, he said something to the effect of, we've got two KIAs momentarily. It was three KIAs, four KIAs, six KIAs. 
um, in eight KIAs for the longest um, period of time, and then we had a ninth um, KIA. Um, when that terms come, when those terms come over the radio, ranch house like attack, and he starts um, reporting numerous KIAs, um, it's indescribable. It's undescribable for me to be able to convey what emotions go through uh, commanders and, and a unit when that happens. But I'll just say everybody gets um, hyper-focused on that. And that was everybody throughout Afghanistan, through RCEs, through my brigade battalion, way down. We immediately launched QRF because a uh, quick reaction force, which was led by First Sergeant Beeson, um, because, again, now it was ground accessible. He was basically... Um, within 10 kilometers of us, and we launched First Sergeant Beeson, and, and he did a phenomenal job of fighting to and through um, Wanad. And although the fighting continued for uh, a couple hours after he got there, when he showed up with um, his four gun trucks up at up at Wanad, it was really kind of the tide of the battle switching at that time. I mean, the air assets were great, and they, they helped us a lot, but when we got that additional ground combat power on the ground, got First Sergeant Beeson in there, um, along with the element he brought up, that kind of started changing the battle. We flowed in a lot of uh, reinforcements throughout the day. We brought in uh, SFODA team with uh, 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 Commando Kandek that really helped us, an Afghan commando element that, that helped us secure um, around the village. But they also went through the village and were quickly able to identify that the police had been culpable in the attack. They were all in new uniforms, clean shaven, but they had you know four times as many weapons as they should have had, all dirty, all recently fired in their police station. Um, later it was determined the district governor was culpable. And, um, you know, we can never really know all the facts in that. Were, were they culpable because they were coerced? Were they culpable because um, they, they colluded for personal gain? I, I don't think we'll ever really know that. Um, but we do know that they, they and the population were involved in that attack. So what comes next as a, as a leader in that, in that situation where you've lost soldiers, um, soldiers that you know you've got, you know, in the moment, kind of everybody has a job to do. You said that people responded by with this sort of laser-like focus. Um, as the job gets complete, um, what do you transition to? Yeah, yeah, you know that that that's a great question because you are we are hyper focused at that particular time, and we obviously medevaced are are dead and wounded. But a number of people in Two Chosen, to include Matt Meyer, stayed on the objective. I mean, they, they reposition, reinforce um, what they have, rebuilt positions, and um, as they kind of awaited what was next. And, you know, I was out there in, in, in that morning. We walked the ground, Matt and I did. Um, and, you know, he just fought a four-hour fight where, where hundreds of RPGs, machine gun fired, rained down on him, his company CP, and uh, two chosen, and they, and they had fought, you know, as was recorded in history, uh, a tactical victory at a, at a tragically high cost. Um, but they were rebuilding um, their defenses and prepared to continue on with the mission, I mean, that fast, within hours of the last, uh, last round fired out there. But as we assessed the damage to the town, we found out the, the culpability of the police of the district governor, um, the bazaar and economic area had been utilized, as had the mosque been utilized to fire at our folks. The little hotel that was there had been used to fire um, at our paratroopers. There was a lot of damage to the infrastructure, obviously. Um, is it quickly became apparent we were not going to spend the $1.4 million in agreed to projects anytime soon anytime soon and again this wasn't the enemy occupying the town but this was the town facilitating the enemy the governor facilitating the enemy the the police likely part of the attack and again these are afghan commandos that kind of laid this out for us um and, and and we were able to verify that through other means as well so as painful as it was to some is when i was asked my opinion i said I think we need to withdraw from from Wanat, and uh, 
you know, there was there was a lot of discussion about that. But my point was the emotional attachment to the ground, because we lost people on the ground, does not mean we should keep people in harm's way to just hold ground that we lost people on. And that's painful. That's very painful to uh, the parents of, of the lost uh, soldiers at this time when they find out in short order. I think it was on 16 July we withdrew from Wanat. And we withdrew because we could no longer continue our mission. We were not going to be successful in the short or midterm rebuilding Wanat and establishing the relationships we had hoped that we were going to be able to establish and continue. Um, so that's what's next. We withdrew and, um, and, and we continued on through July 30th with, with our mission, patrolling all the platoons, patrolling every day, um, establishing security, figuring out how we're going to um, establish security in Weigall, at least put a cork in the Weigall Valley so it would not spill out onto the Pesh River Road and into our economic centers. But uh, that, that's what happened at Wanat after the fight. And then later on, there's sort of a, I guess, which is natural. You have, um, you know, you have a robust media and, you know, media has a presence on the battlefield. They'll start kind of looking into what happened here in this, this big, intense fight. Um, and I think there were a lot of what seemed to be maybe unanswered questions about how this happened, why this happened. Can you talk a little bit about um, when this kind of became a really big deal again? Yeah, and I, I understand your question, but I'll say, you know, it was a really big deal to me on the morning morning of, of 13 July, um, you know, when, when we had nine paratroopers uh, perished and 23 wounded. Um, and, and I just uh, will we'll say that. Um, that said, uh, the 101st appointed an investigating officer. The investigating officer did a phenomenal job. He literally interviewed every single person involved with Wanot. That's the 48 Americans that were on the ground at Wanot, and I should say 39 that were survived, to include every wounded person that had been evacuated to uh, Germany. Um, anybody in the chain of command he had talked to, and I think it was 72 people. And... Um, and they concluded again it was tactical victory at a tragically high cost and they documented well we tried to move needed to get resources um we moved it was the right decision to to move at that time not put one two six our, our success seating unit in in harm's way so we redeployed um the investigation was was finished up after we redeployed um to italy and uh, all of us kind of went our own ways. I PCS to the um, 75th Ranger Regiment, was frocked to Colonel 06, and began rotating over um, to command the Counterterrorism Task Force, of which the Ranger Regiment was, was a part of at that time, and that was deployed to Afghanistan. Well deployed um, on one of those tours and in command of a 3,500-person um, counterterrorism task force, I was called by the USASOC commander and informed that uh, there was going to be a huge media, um, we'll say bonanza or whatever the right word would be, um, in July of 2009, a year later, and that there were a number of questions and media sources asking, you know, real real tough questions about why not, which is, which is fine, but. Uh, it became very uh, uh, media-centric and very po politically charged and emotionally charged very early on. Um, there was a lot of, uh, we'll say, false narratives uh, associated with the battle, a lot of disparaging comments about the chain of command and, and the, the unit itself. And uh, from that point, although I was in this command, deployed, kind of had to wear two, two hats. One was command the counterterrorism task force and continue that job as deputy commander of the rangers the other hat was as um, defender of my unit my subordinate leaders and quite honestly my personal honor and, and reputation um, i thought i owed the paratroopers that fought um, and were wounded and died in that uh, organization I, I owed them that at a minimum as they had done everything i had asked them to do and more and i was confident that uh, 
if I and my unit were found at fault, that my unit's history would be disparaged throughout history. Um, so I fought with, with truth and facts, um, very unemotionally, went forward and provided every investigating body, and it was numerous boards and investigations and um, accusations, just provided them the facts I had. And, that, that, and that's kind of what happened. Played out, um, took about a year and a half, um, and people that want to know the details can read the Combat Studies Institute or uh, Mark Bowden's article, Echoes from a Distant Battlefield, a short article on it that was in Vanity Fair. It's three, three Battles of Wanot, his book, or Greg Zeroy's book, Chosen Few, and uh, kind of details this out. But um, a lot of lessons came from that, obviously. Did you feel during that year and a half, um, still trying to do your job in the Army, did you feel like under a cloud, I guess? Yeah. <laughs> yes, Un under a cloud um, the size of a, a granite boulder. Um, I didn't, uh, didn't seek and don't seek uh, any, anybody's sympathy or, or, or anything. You know, the, the people that, uh, that I felt for were the paratroopers that, uh, that fought specifically in that battle, but more generally in Chosen Company. Um, in particular, and everybody in the in the brigade or in everybody in the battalion fought fought a tough fight. Um, battle companies, battles in the Korngal are well documented and by Sebastian Younger in the book War and in uh, Restrepo, um, the documentary Korngal. But I felt, as associated with this, very very protective of paratroopers from two, Second Platoon and Chosen Company whose emotions were being, uh, I think, manipulated, and, um, and people were trying to make them out to be victims instead of the, the rock-hard um, paratroopers that they were. And uh, that cloud, we'll say, um, prevented me from fighting like a paratrooper, and I had to fight more like a defense attorney in the sense, be, un be unemotional, stick to truth and facts, Make sure that uh, that I can back up what I say, and be comfortable with however however the jury decides. And I was comfortable, but I wanted the truth and facts to be out about our unit. And ultimately, they were, were did come out. And because uh, I was kind of ex exonerated, as was the company commander. Surprisingly, right after that, our three Medal of Honors were approved in kind of in a rapid succession and uh, our presidential unit citation and valorous unit award for the units were were approved and uh, subsequently history's kind of noted that uh, chosen company's most decorated company in the global war and uh, and the rock is the most decorated battalion in in the global war I don't know how people figure that out but that's kind of the mantra um, whether it's true or not, I, I'm, I'm very proud of that, but I'm proud of the legacy, proud of the mission um, that the paratroopers conducted um, and, and how they've honorably conducted themselves since. Did you feel personally, uh, you enlisted in the Army at, how old were you? 17. At 17, you had been an enlisted infantry soldier. Uh, then you went through ROTC, you were an infantry officer. This was what you had done your entire adult life. And when you do that, you sort of expect... Um, to kind of finish your career on your terms, did you feel that was threatened at the time? Did you did, was there uncertainty about, you know, what comes next for me? I had a plan. You know, I've I was infantry. I was always going to be infantry until the day that I retired and the day that I chose to retire. Um, did that change at all for you? Um, it, it, it didn't change, but it definitely, um, obviously, my 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 livelihood was under attack at that time, but. Um, but I think I've always been pretty committed to serving and serving the subordinates that, that work um, with me or for, for me. And to have my integrity, my competence, um, my honor challenged repeatedly in public form was a, a bit disheartening, but it also required resilience. and. Um, I couldn't curl up in a little ball and expect somebody else to, f to fight my battles for me. Um, you know, it was a little disheartening 
that uh, the institution that I'd given my entire adult life to didn't do a lot of whole a whole lot of fighting in public, um, we'll say, or defending. Um, but that's okay. Um, that, that's okay. I, w I was able to to fight my fight, fight my fight for my subordinates. Um, it puts an interesting twist on loyalty that allows, or on Army values that allows me to teach others that uh, Army values, loyalty, duty, respect, selfless service, honor, integrity, personal courage. They, they kind of, they're spherical. They 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 not only go two ways. They're supposed to radiate out from each other and. Um, and you'd think there'd be some reciprocal action in that. And for the most part, um, I've seen that in spades in my military career, but not always. And uh, when you talk about being under a cloud or going forward and what do you learn in stuff, um, you learn that there's some battles you do have to fight, fight on your own. Um, and when you fight them, you, you fight them in such a way that you can look yourself in the mirror at the end of the day, regardless of how those come out. And, uh, you know, my career's definitely taken a different path than I anticipated or had hoped for. But uh, at the end of the day, uh, I'm pretty dang happy with the 35 years I've spent in the military. It strikes me that there had to have been days when you felt like um, you weren't getting a lot of top cover. I'll put it that way. Uh, I... Uh, Listeners, I think, no, I, I, I work in the Department of Military Instruction here. Uh, you're the head of that department, so I've heard you discuss your personal leadership philosophy. Um, and top cover, I think, plays into that a lot. You, I think the way you put it involves umbrellas and sieves. Um, I'll just leave it at that, maybe. Uh, but how much, how much did this experience inform that, your own leadership philosophy? I, I think I've, I had the same leadership philosophy um, before why not but this definitely amplified and reinforced that what I believe what I believe leaders should do is what leaders should do and I think you know we, we've got great doctrine we, we've got great leadership doctrine we've got great mission command doctrine and when we talk about about mission command and the principles of mission command and you know mission command military operations are complete are complex or human endeavors characterized by continuous mutual give and take, you know, moves, counter moves, all this business. Um, we, we talk about, you know, the interactions are in, unpredictable and, and perhaps uncontrollable. And we have six principles and, you know, the ones that come right out and people uh, replicate immediately are shared understanding and trust in commander's intent. And um, I, I do believe that in, in mission command of, giving subordinates orders, giving Matt Myers an order, giving John Brostrom an order to go do something, then train, trust, support those individuals, and then own all the bad and give them credit for all the good. And I think that's what I do. That's what I mean by umbrellas, commanders. You know, you shield your subordinates from the bad, um, and you give them all the good. Um, if you reverse that, and <laughs> you're a sieve and give them all the all the uh all the bad and shield yourself um, from the bad with that umbrella, I think you're doing a disservice to your subordinates and really to the Army because then you start breaking that trust and people wonder, hey, is, is my boss, um, is, is his intent only good when things are going well? Like we say, when it's sunny in 70, do you do mission command? Is that the only time you do it or do you do it when, when bad things happen? And a couple of the leaders I've been fortunate to work with um, over the time have been are phenomenal examples of mission command in, in owning things when they're bad. And that steals my spine and others to see great leaders like that. We're sitting, we're recording this out at Camp Buckner, right? Where uh, kind of the center of all of the cadet field training, thousands of West Point cadets come through training that, that the department you had uh, manages, runs, plans and, and executes every summer. How, you know, you bring cadets out here, you know, 19, 20, 21 years old, and you run them through training. They learn how to do, you know, basic tasks. They learn how to conduct a raid, how to conduct an ambush, how to do all those things. How do you, alongside that, uh, instill the kind of leadership philosophy that that can kind of withstand some of the struggles that, that, 
uh, you went through and, and, and will make these cadets when they go out and become lieutenants and then get promoted up through the ranks, uh, will have the mindset of, of protecting, uh, their units honor, protecting the soldiers who work for them, uh, and, and their subordinates. Well, I, I think we're all products or victims of our past experiences, and I really cho- choose to be a, be a product in all these events. Showing up in 1st Ranger Battalion on 25 October 1983, the day the unit jumped into Grenada. Subsequently being raised by non-commissioned officers that understood what readiness meant. Readiness meant when they were called for the first time in three years to do a combat operation, they did it on no notice, did it exceptionally well came back to little fanfare and and focused on us new people that had just arrived on ensuring we understood what readiness is about. My first section leader, uh, Mike Matt, his dad had served five five tours in combat, one in Korea, four in Vietnam, and he shared his dad's advice. He said, son, um, when you go to combat, you, 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 the, the opportunities to go to combat are few and far between. But when you go, you want to be ready and you want to enjoy it. You want to have fun. thought that was pretty good advice. Um, Matt, Mike Matt was also one of, the first, uh, one of the few NCOs, one of the few Rangers that were awarded for valor in, in Grenada. And he remains a great friend today. Now with five years in combat, I understand exactly what his dad meant and what... Mike Matt instilled in me as an 18-year-old Ranger private. Fast forwarding th- seven years, showing up 1 August 1990 to Bravo Company 3187 Infantry, a unit that had not been to combat since Vietnam and probably felt a little bit uh, left out after not participating in, you know, pick your battles, Iran, Lebanon, Grenada, um, Just Cause, and Panama. But on 2 August 1990, they were alerted to go to combat. On, on 7 August, or excuse me, 2 August 1990, Iraq invaded Kuwait. 7 August, we were alerted to go to combat. 11 September, we went wheels up for Saudi Arabia. Um, having that experience of not having time to get ready, if you will, but to just blow out was a form, formative experience. And I can go, with, go through um, my entire career but those two are two that I replicate or, or repeat here pretty often. Uh, and what we inject into our summer training um, here at, uh, at West Point. So did, did, does one not influence it? Absolutely. It's one of those benchmarks on there. It's about readiness. It's about esprit. It's about fitness. It's about, you know, integrity. It's about selflessness um, to do your job not only fight the fight, but in the morning, evac your casualties and be prepared to fight again. And that's kind of some of the things that we're, we're focused on here, our foundational military competencies, but we put them in context of why is shoot, move, communicate, treat, and lead so important to these um, young leaders. And uh, when you talk about mission command, how, how, how do we, how do we instill that in our subordinate leaders because as you know we we have a cadet regimental commander a cadet sergeant major a cadet staff company commanders and platoon leaders platoon sergeants first sergeants that are literally training the corps that are backstopped by army people how do we instill mission command in this leadership when bad things happen we go ahead and help them work work through these we're overhead cover we backstop them um, something I learned from General Votel, he's a one-star during uh, t- some tough fights over there, and I worked for him subsequently, is when bad things happen, leaders do not need to let their subordinates, do not need to reinforce that with their subordinates. When bad things happen, they need to take things off of their subordinates' plates. They need to be that Spartan shield over top of their subordinate, subordinates, not distance themselves from the bad thing wait for things to work out or not, and then pop up as a leader when it's sunny in 70. I think I'll finish just by asking, I think it's natural with um, any sort of experience that is informative, uh, impactful on yourself, challenging. uh, You know, it's 10 years on now from the Battle of Lanot. I would imagine in some ways that feels like a lifetime ago, and in some ways it feels like minutes ago. Um, when you think back though, 10 years removed from it, is there anything else that as you reflect on it, that really sticks out? 
Well, what, what really sticks out, John, is, is that, that that was one day of a 432-day tour. Um, in that 432 days, we were in 1,100 engagements, fired 5,400 fire missions, and 3,800 aerial deliveries. We had not only nine people killed, we had 26 people killed. Um, to include our brigade sergeant major's oldest son, six hours into our tour, Timothy Viamoto was killed. The nine people um, at Wanat, and certainly, I mean, this is about Wanat. We, I, I owe it to those nine, to, you know, Sergio Ibad, John Ayers, Jason Bogart, John Brostrom, Israel Garcia, Jason Hovatar, Matt Phillips, Pruitt Rainey, Gunners Willing, um, 23 wounded, um, you know, in what's, what's become the Battle of Wanat. If we didn't have the battle, it would be called Cop Kaler that's what that's what we're really establishing and you know I've soul searched daily about this and I know in my heart and soul given the same information the same conditions um, I would have executed the same thing the same way perhaps tragically um, but that's something that that I got to live with so you know I live 150 meters from West Point Cemetery no, four individuals buried there. Matt Farrar is buried there. Dave Bernstein um, was killed on our, one of, another 173rd tour. Um, and, I, and I'm reminded, but I'm reminded of these guys in a very positive way. I'm reminded that these young men, some of America's best, have lived their lives for others, and we owe it to them to fight hard every day, train hard every day, fight hard every day, um, to preserve this great nation that they sacrificed so much for. So, uh, you know, at the end of the day, I'm personally and solely responsible for Wanot, um, the Battle of Wanot. My paratroopers are, are completely um, responsible for anything anybody ever, ever finds good in that area, and, um, and, and I'm happy with that. I'm glad we have the relationships and the com camaraderie that we do you know, in May of 2017, we had our 10-year deployment um, reunion, and we're fortunate to have, you know, 200 paratroopers show up to that. And I look forward to a lifetime of gatherings, remembering those that, that, are, that are fallen, that lived their lives for others, and celebrating the successes of those who are continuing to live in this great nation. So thank you. Well, I think there's a, you know, our country is full of a lot of people who uh, have experienced some very difficult things over the past couple of decades um and too often uh i think it's it's just easy to not talk about some of those things um but i think it's important that we do uh both as individuals but that but collectively too i think the army is a better institution and i think we're a stronger nation when we do talk about some of these difficult things so i really appreciate you taking some time and 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 talking through uh your experiences and 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 you're giving your reflections on it Thank you, John. Appreciate it. Hey, before you go, just a quick reminder that if you're not already doing so, you can follow MWI on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn. It's a great way to stay up to date on what we're doing so you don't miss any of the new articles, podcasts, and research we're publishing every day. Thanks again for listening.